Hello and welcome to What the Lux with me, Fred Moore, and me, Anand Sharma. Together we lead Matter of Form, a design consultancy specialising in brand, digital experience and content. And this is a podcast that calls time on tired ideas of luxury. Alongside industry luminaries and thought leaders, we explore what truly defines category-leading products and services. If you know sneakers, you know Jeff Staple. He's the man responsible for the infamous New York Pigeon sneaker, so popular that riots broke out across stores that stopped them. As well as this, he's worked on countless collaborations with the likes of Nike, Haviana, Fila, Adidas, as well as LVMH, Remy Martin. The list is actually about a page long, so I've just cherry-picked a couple. Some of Jeff's sneakers have retailed for unbelievable amounts. One was auctioned only recently at Sotheby's for six digits, a true collector's items that have taken on an iconic status and are an emblem of the moment. Through this, Jeff's been at the heart of the community since its inception, charting its rise from street culture through to the world of luxury. Jeff, welcome. We're so delighted to have you on the podcast. Thank you for having me. This is great. I'm also joined today by a co-host, Amit Patel, MOF's resident sneakerhead. Amit runs our Design Thinking School Experience House, and while there are many remarkable things about Amit, I'm just going to call out Canada as the one thing I'm 100% certain he'd like in his epitaph. Thank you so much for having me, uh, Anant and Jeff. Honored to meet you. Looking forward so much to chatting with you. Yeah, so I run the design school here. We share the studio space with MOF. It's a fantastic space. We have students who are doing some amazing things here. Much of our approach has been on the creative mindset, not just the methods and tools, but developing the mindset for people to go off and have successful careers in design and whatever avenues of design they go into. As Annette mentioned, I love sneakers. I think for me, it's the 90s basketball stuff that really kind of kicked off my appreciation and love for sneakers. I'm sure you, you know, in New York have seen so much of that kind of develop. So I kind of just want to start there with, for you, what have been some of the moments that have kind of, that you think back have kind of largely defined a part of your journey to where you are today? I, I agree with you on that 90s basketball era. Probably, I guess I'm a little bit older than you because it probably started for me like in the in the mid to late 80s. It was, you know, to me, these athletes that were just doing amazing things, you know, like you know, obviously the GOAT, Michael Jordan, but even like Bo Jackson or Andre, you know, Bo Jackson, two, two sport star, you know, baseball, pro baseball and pro football, Andre Agassi with his swag, um, a particular favorite of mine was Michael Chang because, you know, I'm Asian American, he's Asian American, and you have this, you know, five foot two Chinese kid just like running circles around Boris Becker and Yvonne Lendl and like these, you know, John Macron, these greats. And so when you see these like gladiators on screen, you're just like, how do they do what they do? You know, and there's no way that like me on my little playground basketball court or a little tennis court can do that. But the only thing that I can sort of grasp that as, you know, part of their DNA is the thing that they have on their feet, you know? So if like, you know, I go back to the gladiator reference, if a gladiator has a shield and a sword, an athlete, it's their sneakers, right? That's what allows them to do what they do. And so if that's the only thing that you as a, as a commoner can sort of adorn yourself with to sort of get yourself 1% closer to that level of greatness, then, then I was all in on that. And for me as well, as you admit, that was... The reason why I got into sneakers is to try to improve myself on the court in any way I could. Jeff, were you surprised that sneakers became this form of self-expression? A little bit. A little bit I, I was, but I would say my initial answer is yes, but when I dissect the reasons why, which 
because of my career and job, I've been forced to and want to over and over again every single week of my life. It, it's not surprising at all. I think it, it is surprising at first because people who were into sneakers in the 80s and 90s were like outcasts of society. Honestly, you know, like for the vast majority of the, of the world, sneakers are a commodity item in the same category as a Hanes white t-shirt, a rag, or toilet paper. Like you buy one, you use it, and when it dies, you throw it away and you get a new one. There's no reason to have, dare I say, 10 pairs of sneakers in your collection. Who needs 10, right? And of course, I'm sure, admit you are way beyond 10, you know, and, and a lot of people now are beyond 10, but we come from the era where like you had one wood bottom dress shoe, you had one maybe beach shoe, and then you had one sneaker trainer, you know, and that's it. So it is interesting that now it's become the norm for people to have, you know, double digit sneakers to accessorize and, and express their personalities with. And again, when I was doing that in the 80s, I was a nerd, like a real, like ridiculed, bullied nerd for having this obsession with footwear. Maybe similar in like, I don't want to, I don't want to insult any sort of subculture, but like maybe if you're really into like Dungeons and Dragons or like magic cards or something like you're like kind of a nerd, you know? And it's like now to see a couple of decades later that it's become this pop culture mainstream thing that really influences lots of other huge circles of influence. It is at first surprising, but then when I, when I start to drill in, I'm like, you know what? I, I was right all along, I think. I'm going to ask a weird question, actually. You spoke about bullied, nerdishness, this this type of thing. Like, I'm like this real believer that great creativity is born of a level of pain and persecution. Talk to us about your driving force. There was a lot of that. You know, like, I think the other way of thinking about that is what is the chip on your shoulder that drives you every day, you know? And those formative years between, you know, ages six and 18 really mold who you are as an adult today and... Hopefully those were positive things, but if they weren't, then you need years of therapy as an adult to like chip away at that, that chip on your shoulder, you know, to like loosen it up so that you can be like a fully functioning adult. What happens in those like 12, 15 years are cemented into your soul, you know, and, you know, going back to, to my high school days, you know, and even, um, before that elementary school, middle school. You know, my, my parents were born in China and Hong Kong, respectively. They came to America in 1975, me inside of my mom's belly, with the strict purpose of having the first member of the clan with a U.S. passport. The first member of the clan to go and graduate high school, right? That was like the mission for me. And that was preordained. That was the entire reason for why they were coming to America. And so they land in the middle of New Jersey, literally the middle about an hour away from New York City. And, you know, I went to a school of 1,600 kids and there was three Asians. There was like maybe five black kids. I think there was two Indian kids and everyone else was white, right? And so for me, getting through middle school and high school and surviving that meant assimilation. In the 80s, there was no wokeness of like, I am proud of who I am, fuck with me, or like, no. It was like, you will eat peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, you will never speak Chinese, you will never acknowledge the Buddha. You know, like, you just 
stay in your lane, lay low, and don't get ridiculed. This is, you know, I'm talking about the 80s and 90s here, and this was like common. Literally every single day of my childhood had a racial slur spat at me. And I know like to someone listening today in 2023, especially if you're young, you're like, how could you allow that to happen? Why didn't you start a cancel culture policy and picket the like no there was none of that back then like racism was an everyday occurrence to the point where i was institutionalized to just think like this is normal for people to call you these racial slurs you know it was it was actually like the norm not the abnorm i totally relate to that when i was growing up there are things that i look back at now uh, which were normalized for me which i now think about and i'm like in today's cultural context you'd be hung out to dry for making the types of comments and slurs that that were part of everyday life, actually. Oh, yeah. I, I remember vividly my U.S. history teacher using a racial slur on me in the in a class, like in the middle of 40 other people. He said, like, we were talking about, like, you know, when the Chinese uh, came to America to sort of help build the railroads. And he was like, he, he it was really diabolical. He flipped it as a lesson. He's like, you know, they, you know what they used to call the Chinese that came to America to build the railroads? They used to call them coons. And then he looked at me and he's like, Jeff, do you know that word coon? Have you heard of like in front of all of these kids? It's wild, you know, my teacher. And I'll never. And those are the types of things that you mentioned that like I will never forget that moment. I will never forget that feeling. And so the further piling up of the feeling of like don't express who you actually are, duck and hide to survive for you know, 18 years added to that sort of trauma. Ironically, when I moved to New York City and went to New York University and then Parsons, which is obviously way more diverse, you know, NYU's student body is damn near 48% Asian, I think. I thought like, this is great, salvation, I found my people. But then something flipped. It was interesting because I had been institutionalized to act like a New Jersey white person. When I found my people, they were like, Jeff, you are so white. <laughs> they were like, you would, you like, you'd rather go to Applebee's than dim sum. You don't sing karaoke. Like you don't watch Fast and the Furious. <laughs> you know, like all of these like things that like the Asians were really into. I was like, yeah, I'd rather just like watch Family Ties, <laughs> you know, and like eat popcorn or like chicken wings or something, you know, like it was like reverse, reverse racism where they were like, you're not Asian enough to hang out with us. You know, and so it, it happened again, sort of this imposter syndrome. And then what a little bit later in my career, when I, this is late university, when I started to get into really like the, the elemental roots of hip hop culture, um, and I realized I wanted to create something, I didn't know what it was yet, that would be like an homage or a contribution to hip hop culture. Hip hop culture is obviously mostly black and brown. You know, there's not really room for a Chinese person, even to this, even in 2023, forget about 1995, right? But, you know, again, I was like this sort of outcast of like, what the hell are you doing in this open mic night? What are you doing in this like b-boy battle? You know, like it, I was another anomaly. So like everywhere I went, I was sort of like an outcast of society. It, it's, it's interesting because your work is really about identity and expression. And it sounds like your identity was perhaps in a state of flux because there was a lack of belonging to these various cultures and, and, and through that, do you think that drove you to identify with subcultures that were perhaps 
less mainstream or maybe i would say the the one thing that it did do because i was hiding who i was whether it was like physically or emotionally i think the silver lining in that is that it made me realize that what i produce and what i output into the world is king no one's gonna applaud me because like you're such a good looking guy you're so you're such a well-standing citizen of the asian community or if the hip-hop black community was like oh Jeff is, he's so down, like, no, it's not going to be because, like, I'm popular or I'm cool or I know who I know. I'm only going to succeed if the thing that I make is stellar. It needs to be at 100 because I cannot rely on these other things that other people use to get ahead or get by in life. And so it made me hone my blade on execution and product development and, in my case, design for the most part, people didn't even know Staple was owned by a Chinese person. And I did that deliberately because I thought it would hinder, you know, the growth of Staple if they knew that this sort of like streetwear, you know, urban brand, which is what they called streetwear before they invented the word streetwear, was owned and designed by this Chinese kid from New Jersey. So I was so kind of ashamed of that, that I held that back and just said, like, just enjoy the brand. And if you, after being a fan of the brand for two years, you discover that it's owned and operated by a Chinese person, great, but I'm not going to fly that flag first and foremost, you know? I just want to take a, a step back to the a super interesting how you were talking about the the assimilation and the kind of the, the stark reality of, of, you know, hitting you once you kind of changed from kind of going from high school to say university. And then kind of also kind of looping in the talk about kind of the nerdism, if that's a word, about sneakers. Like at what point, because I, I could see that there's potentially, oh, I'm just going to follow the crowd and now what they're doing career wise and do what everyone else is doing, because now I have a feeling I have to kind of almost fit in, although you're trying to react to it. At what point did you feel I'm really going to go down and, and sharpen my blade to what I want to do? And what was the driving force behind, behind saying this is what I want my career to be? The life hack there, the secret unlock is that that moment that you're trying to describe in my life never actually occurred. There was never a moment where I said, I am going to buck the system and go against what all of my friends are doing, getting their accounting, medical, and legal degrees, and do this anti-establishment thing, right? The, the secret is that I randomly discovered this cross-section of hip-hop culture, skate culture, and sneaker culture. It was the petri dish pre-evolution of street culture. And I fell in love with it. I fucking like was just 24-7 enamored by this entire culture to the point where there wasn't a choice for me anymore. You know, there, there wasn't like a thing where I had to convince myself to do this. Sure, there were times where like, is, are you being reasonable, Jeff? Like, is this the right path? But there wasn't like, I wasn't doing this to like show off to my friends or like go or go against my parents. I at like the age of 20, discovered something that I truly fell in love with to my core. And then after you do that, there's there's no choice for, for you but to pursue that. And so when young people ask me, I don't know what to do with my life. How do I, how do, I do what you did? The answer is not like what checks the box of what success means to you. The answer is actually, what do you love to do? And if you don't have the immediate one second answer to that question, you need to figure out that answer. And in my opinion, figuring out that answer means sampling as much of life as possible. 
you know, so that you can sort of discover what it is that pulls at you. And the great thing is, is that in this day and age, you know, in 2023, that can literally be anything you want it to be. If, if you love like basket weaving, you can be a star TikTok basket weaver. If you like video games, you can be a millionaire Twitch streamer playing video games, you know, whereas 20 years ago, there were legitimately things that were like, oh, that's nice that you like that, but you will die poor <laughs> and like hungry, you know, but nowadays, I mean, literally, I don't think I can think of a thing that like there's no market for, you know, uh, but it's, it's really just finding that passion. I know it's kind of cliched, but like, I think a lot of people, even though they say they are doing it or say they've done it, they still haven't truly, truly unlocked that thing. The good old 10,000 hour rule of like mastering something. The, another way that you can analogize that is like running a marathon versus running a sprint, right? The thing is, if, if you believe that in order to harness the level of expertise that you need to succeed is the 10,000 hour or running multiple marathons, what you need to understand is that if you don't fully love the thing, you can't invest 10,000 hours. You can't finish the marathon if you don't love running. You can motivate yourself with huge bags of money for a period of time, but even, you know, think about it. If I put a, a, a million dollars at the end of five marathons and you hate running, can you get there? No. At, a, at the third marathon, you're going to be like, fuck this. I'm going to figure out a different way to make my million dollars, you know? So like that only motivates you so much. You have to actually love the thing. We certainly see a lot of that obviously here at, the, at Experience House. We see a lot of people who are shifting their careers. They've started in something. They don't love it. Um, and, and to your point, like there's just so much more kind of avenues that people can explore now. I also think the speed at which you can do that now is so much greater than it was 10, 20 years ago with so much online resources, shorter courses, a series of things that you can do to it's almost like shift your entire kind of career path within three months or four months. It's, it's, it's unbelievable. Can you talk to us about the community of street culture? You, you were there right at the beginning and it started as something that there were there were a few of you, and you're all still in the game now. And it's and and the culture has gone from something that was quite niche to something that became increasingly mainstream, that is now quite luxury as well. And can you can you just talk to us on that journey? A, I love it, and and I will. I don't often pat myself on the back, but I will say that if you look back on interviews, even dating back to like 2002, you can hear me saying that like. This culture that we call street culture or sneakerheads or whatever is going to be bigger than hip hop culture, than skate culture, than luxury culture. Like it's going to be the biggest one, even though at the time we were the Dungeons and Dragons nerds, but I knew that it was going to be the biggest one and was going to influence all of them. So I will give myself credit for that. Why did it? I mean, I could have been completely wrong, right? Uh, but why did it happen? I mean, I'm not going to credit myself for why it happened. I think it was like an, an army of people that were, were doing it. I just, I just recognized and knew the beauty in it. It's just like the perfect amalgamation of everything that I loved about all of those other subcultures that I mentioned, you know, hip hop, punk, skate, sneakers, sports, music, all of that. If you took the best of all of that and sort of combined it into like this dish and then added a you know, the sprinkle of like design and artistic integrity. How could you not love that thing? You know, and I knew it was only a matter of time before 
general population would fall in love with it as well. And so by me sticking with it over, you know, last year, you know, I celebrated the 25th anniversary of the founding of the brand, not to mention how long I've just been even a fan of the culture. I just knew that if I stuck with it, people would eventually figure out why this is such a great thing. And I'm glad that premonition sort of came to fruition. What was the backdrop to it all? New York City, I have to say, you know, it's like you ask about the backdrop. I mean, that was where I, I honed my skill. Um, there's no better place to test if you're bad already than New York City. And I think New York was, is, is the only place that street culture could have been born and could have flourished. And the whole world still to this day looks at New York as, as the mecca for it, you know? So that to me is still, still the backdrop. It's New York is an incredible place. It's to me, it's the only city that has the ability to fight you back. You live in other cities. New York lives in you. And New York has the ability to expel people that don't deserve to be in New York. In terms of your own creative process, as you've been kind of building this within within the city, are there places within, like specific places within the city that spark inspiration or where you go to to have creative moments? Everywhere, you know, like not, not really. Like obviously I reside downtown. My stores are downtown. My offices are downtown. So there's something about downtown culture dating back to like even the 70s and 80s with like, you know, East Village, Greenwich Village, Soho, Lower East Side, Chinatown. These are all, all those neighborhoods that I just mentioned are all within a 30 minute walk of each other, right? So it's very condensed, very multicultural. It's it's not really one particular thing. I think it's more about the sampling of it. And I don't want to take away from, you know, Shoreditch, Harajuku, you know, Kreuzberg, Fairfax, Los Angeles, like these, there are epicenters in other parts of the world that express the sort of same energy. Maybe one of the the secrets to my longevity and consistency is that I enjoy sampling all over the world. Because if you are trying to be a, a voice or an expert in street culture, I think you have to walk the streets of the world, right? Like I have peers who live and die by, you know, Orchard Street in New York City in the Lower East Side. And that's the whole brand is predicated. There's even a brand called Orchard Street, in fact, right? Like, so their whole existence is predicated on that. But I think by doing that, you're only like sampling one aspect of street culture. Why not Shibuya or Harajuku or like, you know, um, there's an Orchard Road, by the way, in Singapore, like you should walk that Orchard Road and see the difference, you know? And I think by me being able to sample all of these different things, it inevitably goes into the things that I create. Right. As we're talking about the creative process, can you now talk to us about the pigeon and how you felt when you were when you were designing what became such a hugely iconic sneaker? Yeah, the the pigeon is the mascot for my brand staple. And so for you know, for people listening who aren't familiar, it's it's sort of like if Ralph Lauren you think of the polo horse or like Lacoste, you think of the, the alligator or crocodile. For Staple, who are fans of Staple, they think of the pigeon, and that's the mascot. Um, in 2001, about four to five years after I started the brand, in 1997, I wanted to adopt a mascot for the brand because of the reasons that I just said. Like Those brands that I mentioned have this global affinity that stretches beyond language. You know, like when anyone in the world sees the swoosh or the polo horse it 
they know what that means. Even the jump man, right? Like anybody. And whereas if you just have like letters and numbers, it's not as strong. So I was like looking for this icon or this mascot. And here I am, this, you know, punk kid, like trying to get through New York City 24-7 on my grind. And what I observed is that everywhere that I went, pigeons were there also 24-7. If I'm I'm working late one night and going home at 4 a.m., there's pigeons out and they're trying to eat. And, you know, I started to get this affinity where I was like, man, you pigeons are trying to eat just like I'm trying to eat. And also everyone hates you, right? Like, and, and back in 97, everyone hated what I was doing. Not only the thing I mentioned earlier, like whether it's like the Chinese community was like, the fuck you doing making these dumb t-shirts, black and brown communities, like get out of here, you chink. My parents being like, stop wasting your time, get a real job. Like everyone was hating on this thing that I was trying to build. Right. And everyone hates pigeons too. And I was like, it'd be wild if I adopted the pigeon as my mascot because nobody likes it. And for sure, no one's done it because nobody likes it. And I remember when I told my small team of like five people at the time, they were like, Jeff, you know, everyone hates pigeons, right? I was like, I know. That's why it's so cool, you know. So we started to think about how to how to incorporate the pigeon into our design work and use it as our mascot. And that's when, at 2002, Nike reached out to me and said, "We are celebrating the anniversary of the Nike Dunk, and we're dedicating one of them to New York City." Jeff, would you like to design that shoe? That was literally a phone call that I got on a landline phone in 2002. And I'll never forget that. Fucking, I was like, let me think about that. Hung up and did cartwheels, <laughs> like did cartwheels. And like, you know, that's where I was like, man, what if we premiered this logo and this icon on a Nike dunk and made the dunk just look like a pigeon? The whole thing just looks like a pigeon. And in case you didn't know, we're going to embroider a pigeon on the heel just to make it super known. And I remember presenting that idea back to headquarters in, in good old Beaverton, Oregon, an hour and a half outside of Portland, Oregon. And I was like, I got the idea, guys. Pigeon. And they were like, what? no, the brief was New York City. Make a shoe dedicated to New York. I was like, I know. Pigeon. <laughs> They're like, What? <laughs> And you know, there was a lot of back and forth. And I remember saying, like, listen, guys, no disrespect, but the fact that you guys live in Beaverton, Oregon, and you don't understand why a pigeon means New York City should be the entire reason why you should allow me to do this. Because it's not for you. It's for New Yorkers. They will know. In fact, even if you lived in New Jersey or Connecticut and you worked in New York, you might not know. This is literally only for people who live and breathe and hustle in New York. They will get it. And thankfully, Nike trusted me. They were just like, all right, no change. Literally, there was not a single design review on this. Uh, uh, edit. It was, I presented and we just went in and made that shoe. Um, and then when it released, as you mentioned earlier, it was crazy. I mean, a, a riot broke out. People, people wanted the shoe bad. People slept outside of my store for five days trying to get this shoe in February in New York through a blizzard. Okay. And then NYPD came to break up the crowd. But if you can imagine a kid sleeping outside for five days through a blizzard and then a cop tells you to get off the line, 
you're not getting off that line. And so this, a lot of altercations started to happen. My store happened to be situated in between two housing projects um, in the Lower East Side. And when you got kids with money waiting outside on a street for five days, people from the housing projects are going to come as well and start to see what's up. And so you had this mix of like sneakerheads, hood guys, the NYPD, all mixed together in this one block in front of my store. And uh, it was it was a powder keg, you know, and then it exploded into a, into a riot situation. Uh, people got arrested. People brought weapons. Thankfully, nobody got hurt. Uh, for better or for worse, I feel like as a as a store owner, it was a failure on that day. Like I I botched a thing. Um, the silver lining of it is that the next day, the New York Post put the riot on the front page headline news. That same evening. CBS, Fox, NBC all broadcasted what was going on downtown, that kids were going crazy and rioting over a pair of sneakers. And so overnight, you know, 90-year-old grandma in New Jersey who who buys one pair of sneakers for 20 years is like, what the honey, have you heard? People are lining up for sneakers and paying over retail price for them. And on that day, February 22nd, 2005, sneaker culture was global and it's gone from that to now into the domain of luxury How, what's that journey been like i love it because to me it's it's the bet that i've been making my entire life and so when you know balenciaga and lvmh are putting out sneakers now and naturally for the most part a lot of luxury brands entire livelihood and existence is because of their sneaker category now right um and if you look at the clothing too, I mean, you look at brands right now like, you know, Loewe, LVMH, like they damn near look like streetwear brands now to me. Like I can't even tell the difference. I, I was in, at Harrods, you know, a couple of weeks ago at the LVMH section. There were skateboards and duffel bags and like extra large hoodies. Like I was like, this looks like Zoomies in America. Like it's like a Zoomies is like a skate shop in America, you know. I was like, I can't even tell the difference except the price tag, of course. Um, but it's it's great. It's really validating, to be honest. You know, you mentioned Sotheby's, the the very old school traditional art auction house, just recently sold a pair of my sneakers for a hundred thousand dollars. And when you talk about the chip on the shoulder, man, that feels great. You know, here this kid who was trying to like duck his way through life, dealing with you know racism, predominantly white culture, and then like trying to have this you know beat this imposter syndrome all throughout my life. And then having these sort of validation points occur is is really great. But I got to say, dub, the double-edged sword is that I, I always check myself. I'm like, yeah, great. Sotheby sold my shoe for $100,000. But I'm still seeking acceptance from the man. Like, why? Why do I care? You know? <laughs> like, get over it, Jeff. You know, but like, ah, oh, that's the struggle. That's why, that's why I need to see a, my therapist again, because it's like, the duality of that like i shouldn't care that sotheby's cares now i should be like fuck them but i do care like at the end of the day i still seek their their approval it's annoying in terms of the work that you continue to do and even you know just say looking to the future are there are there any individuals i, I mean i completely you know take on the whole thing cash and, and craft that you know and but are there are there people that help you fill that gas and give you that kind of energy are there any specific people that you look to to kind of help you in your own kind of day-to-day -day work? 
I have my team. My team is incredible, of course, um, but that's sort of the obvious answer. I have mentors, but my mentors don't know that they're my mentors, which I think is is pretty key. You know, I get a lot of young people asking me like, Jeff, will you mentor me? It's like, I maybe that's a lot of pressure to mentor a human being. You know, I don't I don't want to put that pressure on somebody. But if you have people that you respect what they're doing and occasionally you can like ping them for a lunch or a coffee and, you know, the most ideal mentorship relationship is one that goes two ways. Ideally, I learn something from them, but they can learn something from me as well. And that's where like sharing actually happens. And I have a few of those, but I would call them dear friends versus mentors, but we're definitely learning from each other. I'm really interested in hearing you talk to the staple verse. What sparked the idea, where it's at, what your hopes and dreams for it are? Yeah, staple verse is another entity that I formed to house all the digital asset creation that I've done, right? So if, in case you're not familiar with what I'm speaking about, Everything that I've done in the past has been physical clothing that you wear in your body or physical shoes that you wear or actual design work, right? That gets printed into a magazine. And this is actually a really good reference in case like, you know, you're not, you're not up to speed on what's happening with Web3. Previously, an artist would create something and then combine that into a book, a printed book or a magazine, right? But now, as most people can understand, artists can display their work digitally like on Instagram, in a 10-carousel post, you can see art that way. Most people can realize that. What, what the, the shift that's happened is now you're absorbing work digitally only on, in a digital format, right? And so now you can imagine an acclaimed successful artist that has never put out a coffee table book. That's quite normal in 2023. Like, oh, he's huge on Instagram. He has a huge following on TikTok. His website gets visited by millions of people, but he's never put out a book. And we still validate him as an artist, right? Web3 is the continuation of that, of that line where art can be owned in a digital-only manner without having necessarily a physical element to it. And if you've heard of the blockchain, the blockchain is really the contract that proves that you're the owner of that digital art. Because as we all know, digital art, you can take a screenshot of it, you can right-click, save to your desktop, and then you have that piece of art, right? But you have a copy of it. The blockchain is what determines and says that you have the original of that digital, right? So it's very similar to, I'll, I'll, I'll give you the, the web one and two equivalent of that. If I bought a print from an artist, right? I bought the original, one of one. It's got a COA. It's got a certificate of authenticity that says this is the one-on-one. Yes, I can go to Kinko's and make 100 copies of that and give it out to my friend. They have copies of the same exact artwork, but they don't have the COA that proves that it's the original one. That's what the blockchain is. The thing is with the COA, the COA can be forged and copied as well, right? You could do the raised stamp, sure. I can get the raised stamp also made and do that too. The blockchain is sort of immutable. And it, it proves without a shred of doubt that you are, in fact, the owner. And that's a really powerful thing when you can document, A, who was the original owner of something. But then if you've sold this or given it to 20 of your friends, every one of the 20 friends that have transacted on that piece is also shown on the blockchain. You know, which if you think about the car analogy of like a company called Carfax, if you buy a used car, you want to know how many people had it before you this company called Carfax does that. 
Imagine doing that for every single digital asset in the world. That's the power of the blockchain. And so when we create things digitally, I want to do it on chain. That's where that's where they call that term on chain. Um, and I really do feel like that's the future because, you know, going back to that sneaker that we referenced that Sotheby's just sold for $100,000, you know, the original wholesale price of that sneaker, the price that I paid Nike for that sneaker was $32.50. That was the original price. It didn't go from $32.50 to $100,000 in one transaction. It went 120, 300, 550, you know, like 75, it like built its way up. That sneaker probably went through 15, 20 people's hands before it got to $100,000. But me, the creator of that, I only made the $32.50 transaction. That's the only time I made money from that sneaker. The guy who just sold it for 100K and the Sotheby's got their cut, I got not a penny of that. I got goodwill. I got the halo of it, but I didn't get financial benefit. If that was on chain, I could have said on chain in the contract, 10% of every transaction will go back to the creator. And so every time it flipped, I would have gotten 10%. Like that is a game changer for creators, you know? So that's why I'm, I just love it. What I also love about it is, is the fact that the, the curatorial equity or, or the equity of the individuals who've been part of that journey contributes to the final value of the item, which I think for me is a really nice theme, right? But you're right. Everyone who contributed to that could be built into the smart contract to be compensated. Exactly. Jeff, what does luxury mean to you? Luxury has changed. The definition of luxury has changed over the, over the course of the last few decades that I've been fortunate enough to experience luxury. It used to be the thing you had, you know, the thing that you owned that represented uh, a luxury class. And when I say class, I mean like a group of people, right? So like uh, a Rolex is a good example of that. Or like an LV handbag shows that you are in this class of, you know, maybe a couple of thousand of other people that possess this thing. And then I think when that, that room of luxury class started to feel a little crowded, people started to look for a more personalized view of that, right? So then you would get your initials engraved on it, or you'd get the guy at Hermes to paint a, a stripe of a color on it. And then, you know, you've got things like Nike ID, which is now called Nike for you, where you can make an Air Force One, just one of one for yourself, right? So it evolved into this like personalization one of one thing. But then I think what people quickly realized is that like, I'm going to use this analogy of like the VIP room at a nightclub, right? There's like the nightclub where everyone is in. And then there's the VIP room, which is great. But nobody wants to be in the VIP room by themselves, <laughs> right? Like you don't want a one-on-one -on -one VIP room. If you're in there, you're going to be like, I actually kind of want to go back down to like where all the other people are. They're looking like they're having fun. So the fact that you made this one-on-one -on -one Air Force One or this one-on-one -on -one Birkin bag is like too limited now. It's like we went too far, you know? And now I think even coming out of like this pandemic, I think the idea of service and the human interaction is really what luxury is all about. Um, and part of that is because it's still very difficult to replicate and scale that using technology, as we just said, you know, like that feeling of walking into a place and feeling welcomed and attended to is difficult for the Amazons of the world to figure out. You know, like when I stay at the Four Seasons 
and I walk out of the elevator into the lobby and the person standing there says, good afternoon, Mr. Staple. I'm blown away. I'm like, how did I just walk out of the elevator and you just knew immediately who I like? How do you do that? Do you have a camera in the hallway and you you monitor me coming down? Like anyway, it's it's wild and I freaking love it. And it's just those tiny little touches. You know, I go to this restaurant for for brunch in in Manhattan, and when I walk in, the maitre d greets me, and you know what he says? Welcome home. I freaking love that. How hard is that to do? That's not hard. Anybody could do that. Right? Like, I could go to McDonald's and they could say welcome home. But when this guy does it, that's freaking luxury, man. I love that feeling, you know? And so I think that's like the new way. And I I, I hope technology never figures out how to like AI scale that because that feeling just gets to your, your core so well, you know? What are your thoughts on AI and its impact on creativity? This to me is just another blip. I mean, like people keep saying like this is going to change the world. I think it will. You know, just like e-commerce changed the world and and some people will suffer from that, right? Like people who don't want to adapt and and don't want to acknowledge that the change is happening, it, they may suffer. But I also don't think you have to like completely take the blue pill and immerse yourself completely into AI or you're lost. I just think if you accept what's happening and learn about it, just like you should learn about, you should have learned about online banking, right? It's like, I remember the day the days of having a checkbook and you had to like reconcile the checkbook every month and like figure out if it all balanced up. And then I remember the days where like my bank said, Hey, we're going to introduce a website. You just type in a username and a password and you could access your funds. And I was like, hell no. Like I am not, I I want my checkbook. I want my checks. (laughs) Right. And it took me a while, you know, even, even CDs to MP3. I was like, I'm not giving up my CD collection. Are you crazy? I'm going to not, not going to let my music all live in here, you know? But if you adapt to it, it's 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 nice. It's just it, you know you you can learn a lot. Um, so I think AI, um, metaverse, all of these things are just added chapters to how we can express ourselves and how we can live life. It's not going to you know rip your head off and make our whole humankind extinct. It's it's going to be fine. Couldn't agree with you more on that, Jeff. How many shoes do you have? <laughs> I stopped counting after 4,000 pairs of shoes. They're in multiple storage units, multiple homes. They're stashed away in many different places. It just keeps coming. Um, and I'm not proud of it. I'm, I I try to like remove some here and there, but I, I love shoes, man. I mean, it's like if you if you collected watches and you had like 50 watches or if you had 300 bottles of wine or if you had like, you know, 50 Picassos, it would not be strange, but it is strange to have hundreds, if not thousands of pairs of sneakers, but I see them in the same realm. Like they're pieces of mini art to me and I want to collect them so I can understand the variances in all the art. The The thing that's really interesting about shoes, the, the reason why I love them so much is because there's so much culture packed into a shoe, right? You have sports engineering, technology, fashion, color theory, music right? Trend, fabrication, sustainability, all of these things are packed into a sneaker that costs at retail like 125 bucks. It's like you can't really get that much culture packed into such a accessible thing. The other cool thing about sneakers is that they are a commodity item that are meant to be 
worn and used, right? So if you spent money on a piece of art, you don't carry the art around and like show it like, you know, but people are buying these mini pieces of art and then going into the underground tube with them and just stepping in dog shit in them, right? So there's like this very ephemeral kind of like graffiti-like thing where like the more I love the shoe and the more I want to wear it, the faster it dies. It's like this weird, like, uh, I love this. I don't want to wear it, but I do want to wear it because I want to show it up. But if I wear it, it dies. So I don't want to wear it, right? Like, so I need to buy two now. I need one to wear and one, one to keep, you know? So like, it's just, I, I, there's nothing like that, you know? It's pretty cool. So what, what percentage of those 4,000 shoes do you, have you worn? I wore all of them. I wear all the shoes at least once. Yeah. Okay. And on, on that note, I'm not going to ask Amit how many of his, what percentage of his shoes he's worn. I've gone through a shift in the last couple of years where now I'm trying to wear everything that I have. Um, I got rid of a lot during COVID. If, I, if I'm never going to wear it, then I don't need to have it. And I'll just reinvest in ones that I'm actually going to wear. Uh, my, my collection's probably 120 or something. It's not anywhere close to 4,000. My wife would kill me if I started <laughs> kind of trying to, to grow that to that size. I would love to have it. Does your wife think you're insane for even having over 100 pairs of sneakers? I don't even get them delivered to to the house anymore. I get them delivered to work and then take them home with me so I can kind of just carry them in on my own. But I, I think there, yeah, there's a feeling like in the morning I wake up, I have some kind of feeling about the day I'm looking at, and then I'll say, what kind of shoe matches up to that, to that moment that I'm in. And that that's a sign of a sneaker head, a true sneaker head is you start to decide what you're going to wear from the feet first. Most people just put their shirt pants and walk out and decide what to put on their feet. No sneaker heads go the other way. So, and, and a question that I wanted to ask a little bit earlier, actually, in terms of the sneakers, I know obviously we've been seeing collaborations in the luxury space with Dior, with Louis Vuitton, Tiffany. Are there any collaborations that we haven't seen yet that in the luxury space with sneakers that truly would excite you and that you would be kind of really looking forward to see what they do with it? Nothing, to be honest, in the luxury world as it pertains to sneakers has really excited me. And I'll tell you why. It's because I know that the luxury houses don't actually care about the culture. And it's fine. They're in it for the money. They're in it for the hype right now. And 10 years from now, they will not be. You know, they're, they're going to listen to their legacy customer. And their legacy customers, which are primarily old white people, they're going to let this little like blip of skate, sneaker, streetwear slide for a little bit. But eventually, they're going to want their frilly hats and their trunks back, right? They're going to want that back. And they get it. This is a moment of social awareness and wokeness. And you guys have to adapt to people of color. It's inclusive. We understand this is good for business. But eventually, they're going to be like, come on, guys, let's let's get back to where we come from here. You know, when you sort of like, uh, if you're married, and then you date like the stripper for a little bit, that's what we are. We're like the side piece right now to luxury brands. What's the version of street culture that will feed tomorrow's aspirational product? I and this is this is nothing new in street culture, but I love. In fact, most of the luxury brands that you see working with streetwear brands today started as bootlegs, like Supreme Louis Vuitton, Supreme bootleg Louis Vuitton, and got sued by LVMH for it back in the day, and now it's like an actual collaboration, you know. I remember back in my rave days, kids were always flipping the McDonald's logo and saying like marijuana, and, you know, with the golden arches and shit, you know, like 
And now McDonald's is doing Cactus Plant and Travis Scott and like all of these like streetwear collaborations, you know? So I think to answer your question, kids should keep on bootlegging. I, I realize that the only different, you know, the brand Bape, right? Bape and Bapesta and the sneakers and everything. I realized the only difference between a bootlegger and Bape is marketing. It's the only difference. And race, because Nigo is Japanese. But like, if Nigo was born in South China, he would be a bootlegger. But because he's from, you know, like Tokyo, it's it's the marketing of it that makes it cool. Visu being like a good, uh, good example, right? Visu, another great example. If, if Visu was in China, they'd be stamped out by Levi's. But because they're from Japan and they have great marketing, Ah, thank you for existing, Visu, you know? But that bootleg culture is still something that I love because today's bootlegger is tomorrow's brand. Where do you see yourself in, in 10 years? What's, 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 what's coming up for, for you, for the brand, you know, for your work, your legacy? Where do you see yourself in 10 years? I honestly try not to think that far ahead. I don't even try to think five years ahead. I honestly don't even try to think about what's happening on Monday too much. You know, as we all have witnessed through the pandemic and through, you know, all the bullshit that's happening in the world today, life is very precious and very short. And for you to stress yourself out about what's going to happen in a week, a month or a year is really futile and pointless. You know, the only thing you could really control is like what you're going to have for lunch today. You can't even guarantee dinner is going to happen, you know. And I think when I look back on, you know, the 25 years that I've had the brand, it's not because in 1997 I had a 10-year business plan outlined. It's because I knew how to take my left foot and put it in front of my right foot. And then I just repeated that for 25 years, and that's how I got to where I am. Because I think if you set these like sort of, let's face it, BS goals and targets and dreams, know, maybe I'm a pessimist, but I feel like you're just setting yourself up for like failure. How could you possibly know what's going to happen? You know, so I just try to take it one day at a time. Um, what I think I do have is an incredibly good bullshit detector in my life. And so when I wake up in the morning, if I smell bullshit, I'm trying to remove that bullshit from my life. And that's it. I just repeat that every day. And if you do that, I think that's a definition of happiness. Cool. Uh, Jeff, we always ask our guests the same four questions. The first is what most irritates you about your industry? The thing that probably irritates me the most right now is people trying to be overnight successes. And it's not even their fault. I think social media has a lot to do with this because social media only shows you the highlight reels. No one does an Instagram post about their like credit score or, or how much they owe on their mortgage, right? Like they just like, look at my house. Yeah, now post like your interest rate, <laughs> you know, on your mortgage, right? Like no one shows that shit. So it's like, if you're like a, very impressionable 17 year old you're just like yeah i want this and you don't see like what it took to get there so the thing that irritates me is when i see kids just trying to be these overnight successes without understanding the blood sweat and tear that that it takes to get there and i know i'm sounding like your dad right now talking to you if you're listening to this and you're 17 but like trust me like there is no expressway like sure there might be like you might hit a lotto ticket you might get an inheritance. There could be like this sort of black swan moment that changes your life in one instant. But by and large, if you're not willing to put in the work, you won't get the reward. What would you do if you weren't doing what you do? Have you ever thought about that? Do you, do you know what that might be? 
Yeah, um, I do think about that quite often. I would be a teacher at a school. I've, I've taught before, um, and I liked it a lot. I loved it, actually. The only thing I didn't like about it was the lack of scale and the barrier to entry. So I'd be teaching a class of 50 kids, and all the 50 kids come from high net worth families that knew somebody that got them into this program, and here I am teaching the elite how to be more elite. And what I love about what I do with product and street culture is I'm teaching every kid and the admission fee is the price of a t-shirt. So if I if this whole thing that I do were to end, I would probably go back to teaching because I really do have a love for that. And my last question, what is the thing that most excites you at the moment? Lunch. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, lunch. I think we should just leave it on lunch actually. <laughs> yeah, I'm a, I'm a very even keeled person. You know, I don't get super, super sad about stuff and I don't get super ecstatic about stuff. We have a huge collaboration with this brand Wilson who makes the basketballs for the NBA. We're dropping that. We have a huge event tonight. Literally at like 6 p.m. there's an event. It's 12 noon right now in New York. But I'm equally excited about that as I am for what I'm going to have for lunch. It's all, it's all the same for me. <laughs> Nicely said. Look, I just to wrap up my side, fully really appreciated kind of talking with you. I've watched tons of your stuff. I've listened to your podcast. I've watched the day in the life of Jeff Staple walking around in, in New York. So it's been amazing to have this opportunity to, to chat with you today. Thank you so much. Jeff, you're equally inspiring and level-headed. Thank you very much for the last hour. It's been great to listen to you talk. It has been. This, this was fun, guys. I needed this in the morning, so I appreciate it. Thanks so much for listening. This has been What The Lux. You can find us on socials at Matterform and drop us any questions or comments on Twitter using the hashtag WhatTheLux. Or if you're a luxury brand looking for strategy and design that goes beyond the banal, get in touch via hello at matreform.com and chat to one of our consultants.